Hi, I'm Michelle Briere, Mani Dubonnet's Ojibwe from Canada. And I am Shakti Hayes from the Cree Nation, Canada. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And we love and support Community Radio. Why? Because it speaks the truth. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 55 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Let's hear it for Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when, despite the cancellation of the Olympics, True Blue Aussie is still working on its gymnastic skills, which sadly need a lot more work. It'll need every three years' grace, as big supremo Scuttle Ben Morlachson and the team straddle the bars, swaying precariously between supporting our very, very close friend, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, in attacking evil China politically, and our dependence on not-so-evil China economically, for at the moment its combined score is naught, and only naught because you can't get a minus score. I raise this because the Socialist Party came up with its solution to the balancing problem in an interview last week with its would-be minister for going overseas all the time, Penny Left Wing, who got stuck right into the government. Did she get stuck right into the government? Until she was asked what the Socialist Party would do differently. At this point, she just happened to agree with the government on everything except, and here's the critical ideological difference, she would attack evil China much more nicely. Last week, we ended up talking about coffers and coffins, the nexus between filling the coffers of the caring business class and filling the coffins with the non-caring non-business class. Well, this week, it was coffers, coffins and coughs because as the caring business class keeps ordering the government to cough up big economic supremo josh friday icebergs carried out his orders perfectly nonetheless as the government concedes filling the coffers is critical the caring business class has warned scuttle them josh and the team not to discontinue paying their wages bill as they kickstart the old economy expressed among many by our old mate, the Small Caring Business Profits Council's Peter Strongarm the Workers, who made yet another convincing case. If it's cut short, that would just create huge stress and chaos. What it really needs is certainty. See, there's another essential for the business class to do that which they do. Certainty. Certainty and flexibility, it's all they need. Certainty and flexibility, and they can work wonders for all of us. We need the certainty that we won't have to pay our workers and the flexibility not to have to pay them. Pete was all common sense. Imagine how stressful, how chaotic life would be for poor caring employers if over and above employing workers, they also had to pay them. Pete was backed up by a shop fitting, almost said shop lifting, probably is, shop fitting employer of 58 staff, all on job keeper, who said he would have to sack, or sorry, sadly have to let go, about 20 of the staff he so cares about. If he had a his wages bill and good news for caring employers the witch bank which used to be our bank is offering a dedicated job keeper helpline at a time when we know small businesses are working hard to support their employees immediate help matters 
which bank which used to be advertisers. Must be a misprint, surely. Don't they mean working hard to ensure the government supports their workers? The helpline bank spokesperson Charles Rippenhoff explained, advisers caring employers how to rip off their workers and the government simultaneously. Win-win. Winning, according to many, is to build immunity to COVID-19 and US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample, the poor's very, very, very close friend, the filthy, filthy rich supremo of Carnival of the Princess Cruises lines, did a magnificent job to build up the world's immunity by giving COVID-19 to as many passengers as possible to then spread to as many people as possible as responsible a caring business the Supremo as Donald could find. Okay, okay, Princess Cruises keeps being convicted of serious pollution as it dumps its waste into the briny, but the CEO told the court the great company was really and truly sorry. And in the next case, the CEO told the court the great company was really and truly sorry. Well, as thanks for its contribution to spreading COVID-19 worldwide in the interests of immunity across the oceans it pollutes, Donald has appointed his very, very close friend, the Princess Cruises' filthy, filthy rich supremo, to a caring business class advisory committee he has appointed to get the greatest little economic order back on its feet again. We can be confident they'll put the health of the people ahead of all other considerations, like their filthy, filthy rich profits, on which, as the telly news at the weekend excitedly showed, people enjoying the relaxation of restrictions, of isolation, and showed in many cases people also believed they could relax social distancing. They referred to bracing for an outbreak. And the State Health Minister, Health of the Economy Minister, said it's inevitable that we will have more outbreaks. They showed just how important it is to get the greatest little economic order resuscitated. Much more important than more outbreaks, but at least the sick and dying can feel relaxed that they are suffering a little bit of illness and death for a truly great cause. And as the resuscitation of the really needy, filthy, filthy, rich, caring business class gathers pace, we'd know great socialist figures like former Socialist Party State Supremo Steve Brakes on Wages would insist the trade unions must be involved in protecting workers' rights as the caring business class government ignores the evil unions, wouldn't we? Well... Steve, who earns a side earner over and above his parliamentary pension as chair of Union Fund Seabus and the Industry True Blue Aussie Board, has seen the light. He says the Socialist Party should ignore the trade union movement in developing policies post-pandemic. He's obviously, like the government, realised just how evil unions are, like the government. But, but, but hang on. The government says it wants to work with good trade unions and the ACTU, involve the unions who have stopped being evil, continue the cooperation that has led to flexibility in wages and conditions, which the aforementioned Peter Strongarm, the workers and other sensible practitioners of the Greatest Little Order, tell us, show how caring employers have been ripped off for years and the concessions made by evil unions must be made permanent. So the government wants the cooperation to continue to prevent caring employers being ripped off. 
which may mean that Steve and Pete and the caring business class government aren't all that far apart. So if the Socialist Party takes Steve's advice, or probably even if it doesn't, then again it could be a healthy win-win for the caring business class and therefore for all of us. While Steve urges the trade union movement be ignored in policy making, just remind me, in his industry superpositions, who, um, who provides the income he receives from union bashing to real unionism? Finally, break from normal the death last week of the iconic union leader and environmentalist Jack Mundy, famous for the green bands for saving so much of Sydney, which developers have drooled over for years, and sadly, after all these years, under this government, have finally got their greedy hands on the public housing and the rocks that Jack saved. Miller's point. Saved public housing and community assets, and equally important, a belief in political rotation, serving two terms as union secretary and moving on, having led the union with membership backing in supporting the fairness movement of fighting for women to work in the construction industry, support for the gay community and gender issues for indigenous causes, indeed for the broad spectrum of progressive issues, for believing in socially useful work that workers should not perform non-socially useful jobs like the defence industry or mass car and heavy vehicle production. After resigning as secretary, Jack went back on the job briefly, but very quickly there was a ban on him working in the industry and for years he was unable to get work, living off the occasional speaking gig while his wife Judy went back to uni studying law and later went to the bar. He served on the state and federal councils of the Australian Conservation Foundation for years. And speaking of going to the bar, Jack and I often did. And when I stayed with Judy and Jack at their place in Croydon, Sydney Croydon, when we went to the pub on Saturday Arvo, the blokes there admired Jack not so much as one of the great figures in Australian unionism, but because he's a dominant rugby league player, which brought him to Sydney in the first place. Incredibly, or perhaps not incredibly, the Financial Review, a national paper, and our daily newspapers have ignored the death of one of the most significant figures in Australian industrial and environmental history. Not a word, with very little coverage in the media generally apart from this station. Yet the deaths of television actors I've never heard of have been covered, and the Financial Review devoted a huge slab of page three and a double-page spread to the retirement of an arch-conservative, misogynistic, racist, you name it, shock jock, who, who would have loathed everything Jack Mundy stood for and achieved. But we will remember Jack Mundy for the magnificent union leader and environmentalist he was. Thanks for all, comrade. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. 
in December last year, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, prosecutor, announced that the situation in Palestine merits investigations, stating that there is evidence to investigate alleged Israeli and Palestine war crimes committed in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, adding that the ICC saw no substantial reason to believe that an investigation would not serve the interests of justice. This announcement ends five years of preliminary investigations, signalling that the court was prepared to open a formal investigation into war crimes. The decision was immediately condemned by the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, who described it as a black day for truth and justice and a baseless and scandalous decision. And since then, there have been further attacks by Israel and the United States, and the Australian government got into the act, filing a request to intervene in proceedings. Today we look at the ICC, its history over recent years, and what the likely outcome is of the case proceedings. And to do this, I'm joined by Rowan Arif, who's the Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. And my first question to her was, who is the Australian Centre for International Justice and how long has it been in operation? The Australian Centre for International Justice, we've been around a little over a year and a half now. We're the first specialist legal centre in Australia working on promoting and enforcing uh, global justice and really finding ways of providing avenues of access to justice in Australia to victims of grave crimes. But our, really our primary role is to develop Australia's ability to conduct investigations and prosecutions of international crimes using the principle of universal jurisdiction. And for the benefit of your listeners, that's the idea that regardless of the nationality of the perpetrator and the nationality of the victim and where the crime took place, the territory on where the crime took place, nation states have the obligation to conduct investigations and prosecutions of what we would say are the most heinous crimes of um, concern to the international community as a whole. So that's, you know, what we're focusing on. But also we want to ensure that Australia's conduct is consistent with international human rights law and international humanitarian law. And to that end, we work with organisations here and abroad to do that. That's the focus of our really new organisation. Was there a concern that Australia wasn't stepping up to the mark? We would say that they haven't really stepped up to the mark. Uh, If you look in comparison to activity that's going on in other Western states and European jurisdictions, for example, just last month we saw the really landmark trial uh, opening of a trial of former senior military officials from the Syrian regime for crimes against humanity. So they're being prosecuted for that. And we think that Australia really needs to do more in relation to investigating and prosecuting international crimes, ensuring that Australia is not a safe haven for perpetrators of these crimes and doing more in that area. Talk about the ICC, the International Criminal Court. When was that established and what role does it have? So the ICC was established in 2002. It's a permanent international criminal court that was established to investigate and prosecute persons suspected of, you know, what they would say is the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole. The crimes that are enumerated in the Rome Statute, that's the treaty that established the ICC. They are the crimes of uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crimes of genocide and aggression. 
The court's mandate is to end the impunity enjoyed by perpetrators of these crimes and to hold them account when national courts are unwilling or unable to prosecute them for their crimes. And the idea of this system of international criminal justice really re-emerged after the end of the Cold War and, you know, at a time when we had commission of really serious crimes in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda and the Security Council set up separate ad hoc courts for those purposes. So, you know, this was, I would say, really the work of civil society that kept pushing for such a court for a very long time. And it ended in a conference in Rome in 1998, which eventually led to the coming into fruition of the the Rome Statute Treaty. I'm wondering who the members are and whether there are countries who refuse to join. So there are at at current count 123 state parties to the Rome Statute of the ICC. And of course, unfortunately, you know, really powerful countries such as the US, Russia, China, aren't state parties, other uh, states where there are serious crimes uh, going on now, such as Syria, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Israel, they aren't state parties to the Rome Statute of the ICC. I think it's obvious um, not everybody wants to be subject to the scrutiny of the ICC. Everybody, you know, these states want to evade responsibility and accountability. So I think that's the obvious reasons as to why they won't join such a system of international justice. There have been criticisms in the past that it's concentrated too much on African countries. Do you disagree with that? I would. I mean, I think I understand some of the critique, especially from really wonderful researchers who align themselves with, uh, you know, third world interpretations of international law. I think those critiques are really substantial and important. But I'm not always sympathetic to critiques that come out without that kind of understanding. Because I think one thing you have to understand is that the ICC can only prosecute where they have jurisdiction. And in addition, most of the African situations before the court actually came from self-referrals from those states, um, requesting that the ICC initiate investigations into the crimes in their territories. And I think also, to me, more importantly, if this argument is used sparingly, it also denies the right of African victims to have access to justice and accountability. There are really very serious, horrific crimes that the ICC is looking at into those situations in Africa, including um, allegations of genocide, crimes against humanity, and very horrific allegations of gender-based sexual violence. And so I wouldn't necessarily give any legitimacy to this argument if it wasn't contextualized in such a way, and if African victims were kind of ignored, and if their rights to seek justice and accountability was rendered, uh, you know, unimportant. And I think it also really should bring into focus the system of global justice as a whole, which is, you know, requires the political will. And you have to look at the power dynamics of the global landscape. There's a lot of disparity in the power, the political and military power of many countries who seek to avoid, as we were just talking earlier, to avoid the scrutiny of the ICC. Um, You know, Russia, China, the US and their allies aren't members of the court. And in addition, they use their veto power and privilege to block referrals to the ICC from the Security Council to serious situations of grave concern. And we saw that in the situation of Syria. We saw that in the situation of Myanmar. And also, I think today it's important to recognize we're commemorating uh, 11 years since the end of the horrific civil war in Sri Lanka, which was predominantly against um, Tamil civilians there. And we still see no accountability processes 
for the situation and the horrific crimes against Tamil civilians in uh, Sri Lanka. So I think it's up to us as supporters of global justice around the world to really, you know, activists and civil society to really do some of that legal work to ensure that we can promote um, justice and accountability for grave crimes and to push for avenues to be opened up to victims of atrocity crimes to ensure there are no, no double standards in international justice. I'm assuming that Israel isn't a member of the ICC. If that is true, would that be why it's taken so long for a request by the Palestinians to have the situation in Palestine investigated? You know, there are a lot of reasons why it's taken so long. Um, The Palestinians, the the state of Palestine joined the court in 2015 Even before that, there was referrals in 2009 after really the horrific violence in the 2009 war on Gaza. But like I said, I think there are many reasons as to why a preliminary investigation has taken so long and why now we see the culmination of the Office of the Prosecutor requesting or rather ending her preliminary examination and seeking to open a formal investigation into the situation of Palestine. And I think the significance of that has to be stated that this is quite a significant step because it will pave the way for what I think Palestinians and and their supporters around the world are saying is meaningful accountability Um, in a situation that's really defined by chronic impunity where Israel and its leaders have never really faced any consequences for their ongoing defiance of international law in addition to the commission of really grave crimes in Palestine which severely impact on the human rights of the Palestinian people. And so if this goes to the next phase, which is, you know, beyond the preliminary examination, these are criminal investigations, the prosecutor will begin investigating um, the more substantive crimes and identifying specific perpetrators. This type of investigation is where her office will, you know, collect and examine the evidence, interview suspects and witnesses and victims, um, and ultimately to the charging and arrest of accused persons. So it's really quite significant in an area where there has been a cycle of impunity, chronic impunity, we would say. And this is why we think Australia should be supportive of such an investigation. If Australia says that it supports international justice and accountability around the world, then there's no reason for it really to be taking this step in trying to, what we would say, block an investigation by trying to argue that the ICC has no jurisdiction in Palestine. So thankfully, I think the Office of the Prosecutor rejected this argument by Australia and other states and other persons who put forward that argument, suggesting that really essentially this position they've taken is too late. Palestine has been a state party of the ICC since 2015. That's over five years. It's participated in the activities of the court. It's participated as a state in the Legislative Assembly of the court. That's what's known as the Assembly of States Parties. And, you know, I think now we're waiting to see what the pretrial chamber will decide. Just looking at that influence by Australia, it was only one of six countries or six parties who sought to intervene. Is that because of their connections with Israel or is it, would you see it more supporting the United States? Yeah, look, I think it's with with seven other states who provided what we would say individual observations to the court. Those seven other states were Austria, Brazil, the Czech Republic, Germany, Hungary and Uganda. 
But I think in addition, it's important to note that two other blocks of organizations of states, um, including the Organization of Islamic Cooperation and the League of Arab States, they also provided their own um, observations to the court, largely supporting the position of the state of Palestine, of course. And not all members of those kind of groups of organizations are states parties to the court, it must be said. You know, Israel was certainly lobbying very publicly. It wasn't very well known that Netanyahu government was requesting its allies and friends to support their position and to try and block an investigation. We know, of course, the United States has also been making threats and accusations and attacks against the court. Most recently, last week, um, Mike Pompeo, who, after visiting Israel, released a statement saying that the U.S. will exact consequences if the International Criminal Court was to go ahead with prosecutions in, in the situation of Palestine. So I think it's very concerning that there are these continued attacks against the court's independence um, and the global rule of law, as we would say. And, you know, we're uh, calling on Australia as a state party, as a member of the ICC, to support the work of the court, to support the office of the prosecutor and ensure that its independence is not attacked. So that's what we would say. As you said, there are a number of areas they can investigate, and there's four. That's genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes of aggression, which would be tackled by the prosecutor in this time, in the situation of Palestine. Um, So as part of her announcement when she closed the preliminary examination, the prosecutor identified at least four areas of where there are allegations of the commission of crimes, and those were... Israel's conduct in the war on Gaza in the summer of 2014, also known as Operation Protective Edge, the Israeli illegal settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. There was also, she identified the lethal shootings of Palestinian demonstrators by Israeli military at the Gaza border from 2018, and also the indiscriminate shooting of rockets by Palestinian armed groups into Israel. But of course, any potential formal criminal investigation is not limited to looking at just those incidents, but that's just some of the allegations of crimes that the prosecutor examined at at the preliminary examination stage. I'm just wondering, though, if the prosecutors will be allowed into Gaza and have free reign in the West Bank to investigate. Yes, I think that's going to be really one of the challenges for the office because she hasn't been allowed access into those areas by Israel already. And that's going to be, I think, a huge concern. Um, But I think, you know, the crimes have been so well documented by Palestinian legal groups um, and other UN, you know, investigative um, independent commissions as well. So I would think that um, there's other ways that the prosecutor can seek to access um, that evidence. There is going to be that challenge of access to the territory. And that's really where the support of countries like Australia and other members of the ICC really need to provide that vocal support so, so that states can cooperate with the ICC as a fully independent and effective institution. Is there a timeline for this investigation? No. So there's no timeline. It can take very many years, as we've seen um, in other situations. So really, I think the significant step is that to open that formal investigation. So that's what we would say is really the most important thing that's come out of the preliminary examination, is that now the office is ready to begin this investigation. It's been a long time coming, but it's here. 
you're absolutely right. Like I said, this is a situation of chronic impunity. You know, Israel continually defies international law, and this is an opportunity to see where the impact of investigations by an international criminal court can be. You know, will this be able to finally rein in Israeli leaders into ensuring that they act within international law and that Palestinian human rights are no longer just an opportunity for them to continue to violate those human rights. So it is a long time coming and I think we in the international community as activists, as civil society organizations, really need to be pushing our governments to support investigations into grave crimes anywhere. We shouldn't think that there should not be accountability in some situations. The selective justice, I think, is a really difficult and, you know, we shouldn't be supporting selective avenues of justice. Will you continue to look at this issue for a while now? Yeah, look, I think we will. Of course, this is an international justice issue. It's within the mandate of our work. We support you know, the equivalent legal organizations from civil society in Palestine, of course, Palestinian NGOs and civil society there, and other lawyers groups who represent victims. I think it's an opportunity for us to really provide that solidarity and amplify the voices of the victims. Is there anything else you'd like to say? It would be great if we can get the support of the Australian community for international justice and global justice issues. I know that there are a lot of people out there in the community that want to know more about what's happening around the world and to support press people around the world. So if they're interested in following our work, please um, log on to our website and follow us on all the social media. And of course, um, we'd be also really very happy to accept any donations. We are a non-profit organisation. We'd be happy to accept that kind of support as well. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Rowan Arif, who is the director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Jack Mundy, who died recently, has been described as a giant of Australian life, weaving together unionism, politics social and environmental concerns, and a love of heritage, a visionary eco-socialist unionist. As Secretary of the New South Wales branch of the BLS, he led the union's famous green bands, which differed from a black band for health and safety reasons. Green bands were for environmental reasons, an extraordinary conservation campaign which redefined the development of Australia's major cities. I spoke with lifetime trade unionist Dave Kerrin about the life and work of Jack Mundy and also issues impacting on the BLF in both Victoria and New South Wales and the union movement and society to this day. Mate, I don't know about his early years. It's not something I ever really studied or looked at. But from his period of leading in the BLF was when that major influence on people like yeah, John Cleary, Johnny Lowe, me and a bunch of others that was life-altering, really. 
Did he also change the BLF in New South Wales? Well, he did uh, dramatically because it was basically run by a criminal element. So it was a bit similar to, to the US. Because the building industry is based on speculation money, you often get criminal money cleaning itself up and relationships that shouldn't exist uh, develop. So there was a sort of a thuggish element that ran the BLF up there and through rank and file organising on the job, Jack and Bobby Pringle and Joe Owens. So you had Joe Owens from the Communist Party and Bobby Pringle from the left of the Labor Party. They formed an, an alliance and a joint ticket, which was against the rules of the Labor Party at the time, I might add. And through organising on the job, uh, they increased their dominance at the at union meetings. And, yeah, they won the rank and file over. And they can't power on a bunch of policies that were, even to this day, truly revolutionary. And they spoke really about a better world, not just a bigger share of this one. So things like limited tenure of office, where leaderships would spend no more than two terms, and then they would go back to the job, ideally, depending on their age and so forth. And again, I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. And there are all sorts of problems with it, too, that were brought up by, for instance, Pat Clancy from the Building Workers Industrial Union about how long it takes to train for the workers movement, to train a leader, to position them to be spokespeople for thousands and then to see them, quote-unquote, disappear. But on the other hand, that was never the intent of limited tenure. It wasn't that they disappear, it's that they would play another role and, and support the ongoing process of developing leaders and so forth. Then permanency, you know, um, 52 weeks work a year for builders' labourers. Uh, which was, by the way, was a federal policy. So both Normie and Jack supported it initially. Normie then went on to use the permanency fund to intervene in New South Wales. But permanency is a policy where, as a labourer, you would come in, you, you would have your number. If you were out of work, you, you'd be at a, at a work centre, you'd hang that number up, and you'd go on the list. And when work became available, depending on where you were on that list, you would get the job so basically it was a, a form of unequal hire or, or democratic hire and whilst you were at the work centre you you would be training either, either the industry skills or academic skills you would train while you uh, while you received a, a basic form of income until you got back on the job again rotation of, of uh, positions like delegates that sort of thing deputy delegates so you always had someone in training ready to step in to that delegate's role. Translation into all industry languages. Back in the day, our industry in Victoria, for instance, was, was 85% direct migrant, not second or third generation, but direct migrant worker. They also brought a rich experience into the, the union. So you had your Scottish, Welsh and Irish scaffolders here in Victoria, just uh, people who'd been blacklisted in their own countries and ended up out here in our industry and brought a wealth of experience in all states, really, but, but especially in New South Wales and Victoria, the union took great advantage of that and brought many of those people into organising roles and, and, and so on and so forth, delegate, senior delegate roles. Social movement unionism, I think that's the, that's the big thing about, you know, things like the Green Bands, which created many more jobs than they ever stopped, I might add, if you look at it in the historic sweep. But that idea that solidarity did not end at the, at the building site gate, it was... Basically, it was solidarity with life itself, and to that extent, all of the, the interconnected drivers within life, the union taught, and again, according to good socialist principles, it was the role of the strong to, to defend the weak. And with all of the drivers in life, the things that create wealth, that create the priorities as to how we use that wealth, all of the structures we set up and live within, 
that the role of the, the strong union was to defend the weak in all of those processes, in all of the ways in which society as an interconnected whole impacts on our lives. So, for instance, the role of the union to defend low-income housing in the urban areas so people could afford to live there and not go in and just knock down their houses and, and put up rectangular boxes for industry. Victoria Street springs to mind, the, you know, the massive blues there. That Here in Victoria, we're a market. 1971, when the first green band went on there, still being fought about to this day, I might add. But the region, the, the city baths, uh, that beautiful on the corner of Coyne and Collins, it's really worth people going in and having a look. The world's best sort of architectural practices in there built in. And for the union to sort of say, well, our job is to go in, demolish and build, but, but we're not going to do it. Instead, we've got this alternative plan here. We want you to have a look at this and we think it's pretty good. And, and that happened in instance after instance. And the most highly, I suppose, the most recognised and ones most known about are in New South Wales. But the first green ban actually did occur in Victoria, although Jack always had a, a friendly uh, answer back that, yes, but we called it a green ban first. <laughs> he was right. Kelly's bush, it was, uh, you know. But initially, even that was a black ban. Just to go back to Jack and his comrades or his team in the in the 70s or the late 60s, what did they do for workers' health and safety? The industry was changing dramatically uh, back then. That's when you were getting the really, you know, the, the beginning of what we, we see now as high-rise construction. And a lot of the older practices like riding the hook, you know, where you would, you would jump on the, on the hook on the crane or in a bucket or you would jump on the load itself, which was strapped onto your, your, your hook, and you would ride that. In one year, there were, I think, around 15 people killed because the buildings were getting so high. So you were picked up in these wind tunnels and and dashed around and, and, and many died. So that was outlawed. Silicosis, as you drill deeper and deeper to get your foundations, you were hitting, you know, that sandstone and other mineral in the ground and jackhammering that and so on. And silicosis, um, cases of silicosis just skyrocketed and, and so OH&S became a much more uh, complex, vital part of the union's activity. The old corrupt officials just weren't up to the task. What the rank and file did was that they began to run that themselves. And in New South Wales under Jack and indeed under Norman and the leadership down here, they developed the idea of the Homer. So if the job was unsafe and the employer repeatedly refused to fix it, the workers would go home and demand payment for that day. If the employer refused to pay, then it would become a 48 and then a 72 hours. And, and in the end, the employers got the message. And certainly a lot of the OHS legislation that developed, 1984, for instance, here in Victoria, that legislation came out of the, the HOMA of the BLF. That, there is no doubt, or in construction generally, actually. The legislation, and it was good legislation because it actually um, relies upon people being able to determine their own affairs on the job around safety so your safety committee can develop policy. Now, that's a revolutionary concept, the fact that the working people can develop policy for a job. Again, that came out of the tremendous power workers had in their hands when they, when they went home and they said, not good enough. You fix this or the job doesn't move. That sort of stuff became the bread and butter of the union. It was the first line of defence, that's your safety on the job. You, you go home in the same condition you arrived in the morning that became the, one of the primary tasks as, as the nature of the industry changed. Who coined the term green bands? Jack. 
Actually, it's a good question. Well, it was certainly it was out of out of the experience of Kelly's Bush, which was referred to as a bit of a green wedge. And then I think Bobby Pringle, who was the one directly involved with the Kelly's Bush Blue, and Jack and Joe Owens and others in discussion, then said, well, actually, it's not a black band. It's, it's, it's a green band, which is how the Greens Party got their name, too, by the way. That's is when Petra Kelly and the German Greens were looking for a name for their organisation. Uh, they'd come out, so impressed with the Green Bands, they took Jack back to Germany and he spoke about it there. And when they were hunting around for a name for their party, they, they said, well, we love the Green Bands, what about the Greens? We call it the Greens Party. Another effect of the Australian Green Bands. And this in Sydney, and I suppose in other places too, is the first, I believe, interaction between what you could call the middle or upper class with the the union movement, or the left union yeah. movement. Yeah, look, I, I think that's right, and I think um, you saw the same thing in '71 down here, for instance, with the big market. You know, where the middle class owners of stalls, and you know, they were small scale employers, and still are, of course. And the relationships that grew out of that, because traditionally we always see small business and the, and and you know the petty bourgeois, as we they called historically in the left as being the friend of bigger capital and, you know, and so on. But the reality of it is, of course, they're real friends and allies of the working people. I mean, we're the ones that spend there. We're the, we're the ones that work with them. Certainly mobs like the Small Business Association have never looked after them. That's, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's atrocious, really, the way they've been treated. So I think that we never really, as a movement, we still, to this day, you know, haven't really developed up a uh, strategy based on, you know, some sort of charter of rights, that where we would ally with small businesses and protect them, the ones that are, do the right thing by their workers and, and uh, you know, green up for the climate and do all those sorts of things. I think what that experience of the Green Band shows is that it can be uh, a tremendously powerful alliance. And I think just ethically and morally it's something that, I mean, they're our people. They, they just, they don't realise it. I know many of the storeholders at Big Market, for instance, will go without a wage, given the way their, the poor old market's been run down, in order to can make sure that the people who've been with them for years get paid. They're not foreign multinationals that are just brutal and don't care. And, and, I, and I think that, yeah, we never really got to a, a position because we're, our union movement's permanently under attack from the Green Bands onwards to have, uh, you know, yeah, worked that up to the extent that we that, that we could. Look at this market now. I mean, there's, there were hundreds of uh, storeholders who joined the, uh, at that time, the National Union of Workers, now the United Workers Union, UWU. So, this stuff can be done, and yeah, I think the Green Bands pointed to that. The story is that there were bitter, bitter battles between Mundy and Gallagher. Is is that all true? Yes. <laughs> we all treated each other appallingly. We allowed political differences to rise above the interests of, of working people and, and the members of unions. That should never happen, and we need to make sure that we've got processes in place to stop it happening. Why did it happen? Was it the period of history? It was. It was the, the absolute and utter dedication of socialists to their particular view of socialism and to their alliances with either the Soviet Union or China because by that time the split had happened, Sino-Soviet split, and the Communist Party, which wanted to take an independent, which did indeed take an independent line. Uh, for instance, the Communist Party supported Dubček and that Prague Spring of uh, socialism with the human face. And it was interesting. I saw um, Lee Rhiannon's comment about Jack the other day about that's what he represented in Australia, socialism with the human face. 
I thought that was wonderful uh, thing that uh, Lee did there to make that connection again. But back in the day, I mean, these were people who had committed their entire lives from their from their teenage years, from their when they were boys and girls, a lifelong commitments to the revolutionary struggle. And their unionism, their day-to-day unionism, was framed by that revolutionary struggle. They always had a view of a better world in mind, not just a bigger share of, of this one. So when you get that level of commitment, again, you, you know what it's like. You live a committed life, and, and I'm the same. That's what provides meaning and, uh, and value. You know, when you feel that is under threat, when you feel people have actually acted in a traitorous way towards uh, those core beliefs and core commitments, then that's, you know, we, we know from history, that's big. And whatever your ideological commitment is, that's big. The differences occurred when we were deregistered in 74, 1974, and I was at the rally when Jack was down here for the rally in Melbourne at the court, and Normie and Jack led the march, and we were marching down the street holding sort of a ball and chain, saying, well, we're last free of the arbitration system, the ball and chain. We can negotiate as we as we please, etc., etc." Now, that scared the pants off the rest of the existing movement, union movement. It wasn't something they were ready to do, to step outside of the framework where the state gave you sanction to operate as a union or not. And it had an impact, especially in the states outside Victoria and New South Wales, that deregistration began to have an impact. Now, Normie was approached by the employers and said, well, you know, we, we will support re-registration, but not with the New South Wales branch of the BLF as part of that. He accepted that deal. He went up to New South Wales with 60 organisers. They were armed. I can talk about this now because you know, the main people are dead. And they colluded and collaborated with the employers and the police. So they worked behind police lines. They scabbed and so on and so on and so on. So it, it was a tremendous... Uh, those of us who were young and, and, and connected more with the Communist Party and with Jack Mundy, we were saying, look, he's going to come back and bite us. We need to rise above this. We're better than this. We cannot have branches blowing with each other. And, and we called for mass meetings around the state, uh, states to settle this so that we could get resolutions in place that said, all right, anything but war. This is irrational. It is not the way forward. But the two lines, either Soviet, you were either Soviet or, or in the day or you, or you were... Chinese line. It was too important to them. It was too important to them, this struggle for, for dominance within the industry and within the ACTU. Was it going to be Normie or who? Was it going to be Pat Clancy from the BWIU who got control of the construction industry work of the ACTU? And, and that stuff, look, it, it haunted our movement and indeed it did come back and bite us on the bum and, and, and you know, around 10 years or, or less later we were all in for it again and uh, 84 they started the attack on Normie, that terrible attack where they accused him of being, you know, corrupt and in it for his own reasons and whatever else he was, Norm Gallagher was not in it for his own reasons. And then hit us with the D-Reg 86, April, memory serves. Then the raid in 87, where the laws governing the raid weren't even through our parliament until 12 hours after um, I was in the parliament at the time, upstairs, looking at it all. And I was in the raid earlier in the morning. I, was, I got in there just as the police were still raiding the building. So what happened in the 70s, it did help isolate us as, an, as, a, as the Builders Labor's Federation in the lead-up to that really fair income deregistration in the 1980s. And that was um, under the Labor Party? That was under the Labor Party, federal and state. And, and really this gets us to the, to the reason why it happened. I mean, because it had nothing to do with a, a two-bedroom poured concrete house at McLaughlin's Beach that, that Normie had. 
it was all about the fact that the BLF and, and some other unions as well, but primarily the BLF, w- would not go along with the introduction of the uh, what's the term for it, uh, Jan? When when the when the bosses when the when the companies come in and they restructure your your, your whole country. Well, that's what they did, and and of course they couldn't introduce that neoliberal rollout, which is really the big four. It's your privatisation, your casualisation, sham contracting and offshoring of jobs. With large public sector unions in place being shown solidarity by other unions, we would have stopped the privatisation. We would have stopped the introduction of casualisation. We would have certainly, because we stopped the privatisations, and that it would have been easier to stop the offshoring of our jobs, in other words, the dismantling of industries, which COVID-19 has shown the disaster that is. That's what the attack was. The strongest, um, most militant uh, section of the union movement in this country, they deregistered it, outlawed us, so so it was deregistration and derecognition here in Victoria. They actually outlawed us to a point where on the job, members of our organisation were sacked for being members. They had police on the gate checking the union ticket every six months. If you had a BLF ticket and you didn't have the BWIU one, you were gone. To see that, that level of regulation, militant regulation by capitalist class and its state against organised labour, it was a truly educational experience to go through that, to learn what it's like to operate out of Ill- illegality. And that, for me personally, was a big thing to learn those things because it went on later into things like union solidarity and, and so forth, uh, without getting into detail there. But I mean, so those, the reasons why the attacks occurred on the BLF were to do with the rollout of the neoliberal agenda. They already had the secondary boycott laws so that it was illegal for unions to show solidarity with each other or within their own ranks even as a union. You saw this constant attack on the ability and the rights of workers to organise. And where you were organised, it was made ineffective because you couldn't show solidarity, which is the very, very heart of what unionism is about. It's why we exist is to achieve solidarity and using solidarity is how we win. You take that away and it's gone. So we've seen over the decades we're now under density and and that's the reason why. You had the introduction of the secondary boycott laws and then the incredible attacks just, what, seven odd years later, the incredible attacks on on unions, the main one being the BLF, which said to other unions, you watch out because if you step outside the the neoliberal line and the accords and so forth, you'll go the way of the BLF. And then we saw the forced amalgamations. You know, where it was literally said in writing to unions, if you have not amalgamated by this date, you will be deregistered. They used us as the whip hand to, again, try and set up a a sort of a neoliberal unionism that reflected the neoliberal economy back to itself and provided all of the infrastructure that you needed in the new world. Dave, what was happening in New South Wales while the BLF was under attack here in Victoria? What had happened in New South Wales in the 1970s under Jack? Uh, yeah, because of the normie Jack differences and, and how that played out, the BLF didn't last long when the 1980s assault came on. It didn't last long in any numbers. The ill feeling around the BLF because of Gallagher's intervention made it very hard to, to oppose. And I was one of the people going up there to try and say to people, look, you know, if we're going to be true to what we did in the 1970s, if, we, if, we're, if we're fair to anybody about what we were saying then, we've got to defend the BLF now and we've got to defend Norm Gallagher. Hard as it is, that's life. Principle and preference often are in contradiction, you know, and we can't stand back with some ideal view of the world and, and, and respond to a 
a preferred set of facts. The facts on the grounds were the, were the ones we had to respond to. And what were the facts on the ground? Well, the facts on the ground were here. You had a union, and despite the differences within it, it was a fighting union that, that tried to defend its rank and file, and it was under attack. It was under attack because the wider political view of the union, which has been, I believe, borne out to be 120% correct, was that we were now engaged in a process with capitalism where we were seeing sovereignty ended, where we were seeing the right to organise completely taken away, that the worst was to come unless we organised and opposed it. So that was all that stuff around the accords and that which the BLF stood outside of and criticised. When those attacks came, a lot of the rest of the union pulled us head in. Yeah, and we, and we can see where, where that's headed. We're still marching in the street, demanding that the rules be changed. But again, the thing about the Green Bands was it was about social movement unionism. It was about achieving that better world. And I want to make the point here that we've really got to think twice, don't we? Three, three times, four times before we're going to stand up and stay in the same the street. We want the right to be more militant, but it's only with a view to win the next EBA round. And remember, because of all those bad laws, the EBA can never deal with things like the climate emergency. It can never deal with things like housing. It can never deal with things like indigenous rights. Unless we step outside these bad industrial laws, we can never deal with those things. We can, we can never put them into an EBA, an enterprise barring agreement. So I believe 100% these laws are wrong. We've got to get rid of them. And we need strong militant unions to defend workers and the nation. But to what end? What is it we're actually fighting for? And I think there's a lack of clarity on that because whenever you get to that point at the moment, we're basically being told, well, it's whatever the Labor Party decides to do. Well, God help us all, honestly. The ones who are the arbiters of the neoliberal agenda and still haven't resolved that yet. They're still blueing about that. Now, I'm not saying don't be in the Labor Party. Be in the Labor Party. Be in the Greens. Be in one of the left organisations. But as social organisations, unions, we have to have our own policies on behalf of our members which speak to a better world, a world where housing is taken care of and education and health and where we can work with the climate instead of against it. So these are the things that, that I think Jack, Bobby Pringle and Joe Owens and people like that in New South Wales were so clear on, you know, right back there in the, in the 70s. Finally, Dave, do you see Earth Worker as one of the legacies of those green bands back in the 70s? Yeah, absolutely, I do. And, and Jack was, was a, a patron of Earthworker, so and I, and I had conversations with him over the years when when I wasn't sure about what we were doing and how how we should do it and you know, what did he reckon and so absolutely we came from that we came out of the experience of of that form of social movement unionism that said that working class people uh, the vast majority in the ninety percentile of of the world's population and Australians we need to have structures that reflect the way we live, not just the way we work. Because if we lose that notion, setting up structures that allow, provide us with the means to show solidarity with each other in meeting our needs, if we lose that and we take it just to the job, then we'll lose that ability to show solidarity with each other on the job. Because, of course, we lose power. We lose the, the fact that if we can't be a voice for people who are trying to save their swimming pool, save their park, uh, who burned about forests um, and so on and so forth. If, if we lose that ability and we lose that link with, the, with our own people, then history shows we, you, you lose that ability on the job. It is inevitable because, you know, you start to represent what many young people today would just see as a, an elite. I mean, so many of them had never worked with rights. 
and then here we are with, with having all these agreements put in place and working off agreements and, you know, we have delegates and we have all that. And, well, of course they're going to see us as an elite. So that link, that, that notion of a, a social movement unionism where we're deeply embedded in the communities in which we live and not just work is crucial if we're going to achieve things like sovereignty, re-establish control over the leaders in our own country again, uh, if we're going to deal with uh, Indigenous treaty, you know, if we're going to deal appropriately with uh, with uh, asylum seekers and refugees, we've got to have actual power. Yes, that starts and ends where we work, where we create the wealth, but it also, of course, involves the streets we live in. Thanks for all that, Dave. No worries, Jan. And that was long-time trade union activist Dave Kerrin. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio. You got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Father Steve Kelly, along with seven other Catholic Plowshare activists, staged a protest outside the naval submarine base Kings Bay in Georgia, US, the largest nuclear submarine base in the world. They entered the base on Wednesday night of the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination, the 4th of April 2018. This action was just the latest in a lifetime of peace and anti-war activism for Steve Kelly. But we'll begin with the latest episode in his life of commitment, a commitment that has resulted in 10 years of his life in jails in the US, multiple jail sentences for protesting nuclear weapons. I'm speaking with fellow activist Cathy Kelly about the life of Steve Kelly. Cathy, I'd like to begin with the repercussions of the King's Bay action then look back on Steve's life, which has seen him travelling the world, connecting with people, facing traumas, repression and challenges to their well-being. Two places on either coast of the United States where there are a fleet of submarines carrying nuclear weapons and it's a fleet that's operated 
by the naval station at King's Bay. It's off the coast of southern Georgia. And these Trident submarines kind of prowl along the coastline. And it's a place that's considered very off-limits and top secret. Uh, And it's also a place where the nuclear weapons are, even as we now speak, being upgraded so that they can carry tactical nuclear weapons, but this, we are afraid, can even make a greater, a far greater danger of the likelihood of a nuclear war. And what were the activists doing there? How long was that planned for? Well, the Plowshares activists put a long time, uh, This, in this case it was at least two years, into their planning, and they meet with regularity. And these are, are very, very, very serious activists who have been part now of a history that has included 100 previous process actions in places all around the world. They have a commitment to the scriptural uh, injunction, basically, um, that asks in the book of Isaiah, when will come the day when they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks? And so people who agreed to be part of a plowshares action agree that in some place where nuclear weapons are maintained or stored or developed, they will go into that place, usually through trespass, and do some kind of symbolic disarmament action. And so in the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 entered into the base at night they um, were able to find a, a way to gain entrance, and then they spread out to three different places on the base. And they carried um, bottles uh, of their own blood, and this is also something the Pasha's activists do. They want to show that these weapons cause bloodshed. So they take their own blood and they pour that. They also use crime scene tape, yellow tape, that marks something like uh, the scene of a crime. They placed Robert Ellsberg's book, Doomsday, the Doomsday Machine, on uh, one of the three sites that they went to. And then they also had um, a, a huge banner that said that nuclear weapons are omnicide. And they dedicated their action very much to the spirit of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. So they hung banners. They um, made a spray-painted message. They put up the crime scene tape. And then Patrick O'Neill had a, a, a sort of a mallet, and he took a replica of the D9 nuclear uh, warhead, and, and his hammer broke instantly. Uh, so he didn't do any damage to that replica, really. I, I, I go into all that detail because they really didn't do any anything that would normally occasion a great disturbance in terms of uh, trespass or damage to property. But the United States military does not like to be exposed as um, not being unable to secure these very high alert bases. And so they, they, they want to punish and, and deter. They don't want others to take these actions, and they threaten people with um, very severe charges, as has been done with the King's Bay plowshares. They've now been brought to trial and convicted, and they await sentencing. Well, it makes a bit of a mockery of the fact that they say it's high security if all those people could get in at different places around the base. 
Well, that's true, and this has certainly um, happened earlier. Uh, our, our friend Megan Rice, an 85-year-old religious woman at the time, a nun, and uh, her two companions, Greg Birchie and Michael Wally, entered into a base at a place in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and they were able to go past at least seven security alerts with, be, without being detected. Uh, in Ireland, I remember a group went into a base at Shannon Airport to do a, a plowshares action just before the United States began bombing Iraq. And um, they ended up uh, gently waking guard up <laughs> to say, you know, we've, we've, we've been inside your base and we've set up a small shrine uh, and with our posters and sent them arrested. But um, the other thing is that people never try to run away. It's not hit and split. They calmly await arrest. After the arrest, it took quite a while for the seven to be taken to trial. Where were they in that period? Well, it varied. Um, initially, they were all in the Glen County Jail. Uh, then three of them decided that outside the jail they would be able to do more in terms of outreach and education. And so they um, signed the papers and paid a certain amount of bail, and they were released with uh, what, what are like leg irons. You know, it's called an ankle monitor, but don't think of a light bracelet. These are heavy leg irons, and they had very strict curfew times and surveillance. And then uh, eventually um, one more person opted to do that uh, for health reasons, uh, and likewise a fifth person. So we're out. Liz McAllister and Steve Kelly were still in. And then uh, Liz McAllister was kind of bounced out of the Glen County Jail. She didn't know what was going to pack up your things, you're going. And I think because of her age and for health reasons, they just didn't want her to be in that jail any longer. So she was out without any kind of a monitor. Uh, and then uh, once they were all convicted, all of them have a, a curfew, but they, they don't have to wear the leg irons anymore. Uh, Steve Kelly is still in jail. He has a warrant out for his arrest in Tacoma, Washington, uh, the west coast of the country. And um, I've known Steve for a long time, and I'd say that... Uh, Ten years of that time, he has spent in prison for various plowshares actions. Uh, and he generally, once he goes into a federal prison, will decline to obey a rule of some sort, and he's put in solitary confinement. And so he's, he's spent an extraordinary length of time in solitary confinement. But he's he's a very strong person with a, uh, a resilience that's just, quite amazing and uh, but even with that I am sure that uh, now going into his third year in a county jail he's um, experiencing a, a, a very difficult time I've been in county jails in the south as myself as a prisoner uh, no longer than two months there, there's very little oversight the jailers can be as uh, precocious as they wish they get money for holding federal prisoners, but they, they, they don't have to spend that money on food or on um, making the place more livable. They're dingy, cramped, crowded places. And so Steve Kelly is certainly um, paying the price for his very deep beliefs. Are there any concerns for his health? Well, he's 
been initiated. He was brought to court for the trial, and uh, lawyers that have been in to see him do worry that he's lost quite a good deal of weight, and they, they next to never get outside. And, of course, now with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, it's just ridiculous to think that people would practice physical distancing and possibly they'd get disinfectant and access to clean water to wash their hands. But uh, I think uh, if there is an inside that county jail, I would expect that he'd be quite vulnerable. He turned 71 in prison. Now, he's a Jesuit priest, and he's somebody who is extremely well-educated and, and really quite well-traveled. I once had a chance to go with him to Pakistan uh, and on, on another occasion uh, with a peace team to which intended to get to Sarajevo, and we were turned back and um, went to Mostar and then protested outside Italy's Aviano Air Base. But I, I know him to be someone whose skills, are um, well, I, to me, they're enviable. He's he's a consummate diplomat. When he uh, he was part of our small group that went to Pakistan, and he had to leave early, it was as though there was a hole left in the group, couldn't be replaced. And he he just uh, is an, a very reliable person in terms of his mental ability and his emotional stability and his um, very acute capacity for analysis. What do you know about when it all began for him, his concern for others? Uh, Steve Kelly was kind of legend, I guess, as a young teenager for uh, being uh, sort of the most flamboyant in in the group. He'd have a purple hearse parked outside of rock concerts, and uh, that was where people flocked. Uh, but then he joined the Mary Knoll Religious Order, and Mary Knollers, um, prepare for mission work in other parts of the world and often are working amongst the poorest of the poor. And although uh, uh, he didn't have any grievances toward Mary Noel, he became more drawn to the Jesuit uh, training and commitment, and so he uh, became a Jesuit priest. And uh, there he met Jesuit Dan Berrigan and also got to know Phil Berrigan. And the Berrigan brothers have been very committed to ending all wars and particularly for Phil Berrigan, a lifetime of commitments to these plowshares actions. And Phil Berrigan was a, he's a former priest and he was married, he's since died, but was married to Elizabeth McAllister, who was a former nun. And they were uh, I mean, what, the media loves this, you know, um, priests who become activists, who fall in love. And so they were quite well known, really, especially amongst activist circles. And after the Vietnam War ended and they had protested that war with great creativity and passion. After the war ended, um, Phil Berrigan began to believe that the uh, the focus of our actions in the United States really must be on nuclear weapons and the uh, ways in which the laws of the country protect the weapons and the weapon makers and to defy those laws. And so that's when they um, worked out this civil disobedience action that they called plowshares action. Can I take you back a little? Did he also work with the underprivileged in the United States itself? Well, Steve has always been part of the Catholic worker movement as well. So he has lived in a home in California 
that not only takes care of people who are quite needy, but also um, has a clinic, a free clinic. And he's been part of that kind of ministry. And uh, I would say that throughout his life, wherever he has been, he has been very humbly trying to, you know, walk alongside and live alongside people who are who are needy. I I remember one time he was celebrating a liturgy at the Nevada test site in the state of Nevada where um, nuclear bombs are tested. And because of his desire to identify with people in Guantanamo who are imprisoned, instead of wearing, you know, that some priests wear when they celebrate a liturgy, he put on the orange jumpsuit. And uh, that's a very typical symbol, I think, of of Steve's identification with people who are trapped and immiserated and deprived of their basic needs. What about um, Central America? There was a great deal of support for the people in Central America with the the death squads and the American support for those death squads and the the governments, the right-wing governments in Latin America. Was Steve there at all? Yeah, I'm not aware of him having gone to Central America. I think that being a Jesuit, he certainly must have been uh, acutely aware of, for instance, the assassination of six Jesuit priests at the University of San Salvador. I I really can't say whether or not he went to Central America, but I do know that um, he thinks, I don't want to say single-minded, but he's been very purposely focused on the issue of nuclear weapons. Now, when he went to Pakistan, he was completely aware of the possession in both India and Pakistan of nuclear weapons and the possibility of a small weapons tactical exchange, and that could occasion a nuclear winter, and you know, it's still a huge risk. I do know that the the people who have invested a great deal of their life and energy in the plowshares movement tend to stay focused on the issue of nuclear weapons. As uh, Steve says, those nuclear weapons aren't going to go away by themselves. How far around the U.S. did he travel to these facilities? I'd imagine the, there are facilities in many, many parts of the U.S., Oh, yes, and he's done previous plowshares actions at uh, various ones of these facilities and been imprisoned for this. As I say, he's done in total 10, 10 years of time in prison. Uh, for a time, he he lived in, in New York at the um, home at the time Daniel Bergen was alive, and he and several Jesuit priests who were considered to be among the most radical in the United States uh, lived there, but during most of that time, he then went into prison, and I remember uh, the New York Jesuits uh, worrying then for his health. And, um, and and I can tell you, I've corresponded with him for many years, but always because he's been in jail. How was he treated in jail? Well, I wrote an article called "He's Got Eight Numbers Just Like Everyone Else," and and that's a line that jailers use to sort of uh, make sure that nobody tries to act as though somehow they should get special treatment or that they're better than others. But I am quite sure that Steve doesn't try 
to pull rank and and say that he he deserves special privileges. Uh, in fact, he asks that nobody write to the judge and, and seek leniency for him. He wants people to write letters and seek an end to nuclear weapons. So he doesn't complain. I get a you know got a weekly postcard from him, and he does manage to stay on top of the news. He gets the New York Times as subscription arrives to him at the jail, and he he gets you know a fair amount of time for reading and study and prayer and. Hopefully he gets in some exercise, uh, but I think uh, his lawyers would have told us if he was being mistreated by the jailers in any particular way. How difficult is it to send postcards and letters to him and for him to send them out to his friends? Well, it's almost comical. The only way that you can correspond with anyone in the Glen County Jail is through a three-by-five pre-stamped postcard, and you must use blue or black ink. If you used red or green ink, it will be rejected. You must put the name on the postcard exactly as his name and prison number appear on their list. If you write Reverend Steve Kelly or Steve Kelly S.J. for Society of Jesus, it will will come right back to you. Uh, You can't send a letter, you can't send a card other than these postcards, you can't send a book. The conditions are very, very um, primitive, I think, in terms of allowing correspondence or visits. If if somebody visits, it has to be um, a, a case of speaking through a plexiglass window, uh, and you, you've got a phone, and the person you're visiting has a phone, and that's how you communicate. Have you done that? Uh, no, I, I'm generally not allowed to visit prisoners because of my own prison record. There's an irony in that, isn't there? <laughs> I remember one time trying to go in a state prison. I thought, oh, surely they'll let me go in a state prison. And the jailer said uh, no, and I said, well, I'll go wait out in the in the lobby, and the jailer said, you can't stay in our lobby. And then I said, oh, well, um, I asked my friend, can I have the keys to your car? I'll go wait in the parking lot. He said, ma'am, you can't be in our parking lot. And I said, do you mean I have to go over in that cornfield? Yes, ma'am. And, of course, that's a private prison. Well, no, this was a state prison. Okay. But the private prisons are terrible, terrible networks in our country now. This prison industrial complex is becoming profitable in so many ways once, you know, if Steve does get sent to a federal prison and the same is true of each of the Kings Bay Plowshares people, then, you know, there's a lot of pressure to work uh, a job wherein you get paid next to nothing, but major corporations are, are making a huge amount of money on this kind of labor because they don't have to pay insurance, they don't have to pay for supervision, they don't have to pay vacations, they don't have to pay sick, and nothing. Um, and, uh, but of course, the Polishers activists are very, very unlikely to accept any of those jobs. Going back to the court, what were they charged with and what was this? And they haven't been sentenced yet, have they? No, the, sentence, the sentencing is now scheduled for May 28th and 29th. There, there, there's seven of them, so three will be sentenced on one day and four the other. They were charged with trespass and then with damage to property and 
depredation of property. And the lawyers were trying to say that, you know, that two, one of those charges ought to be dropped. You can't, they're so similar. But um, they were convicted on all counts. And then um, one of the reasons for the long delay after that October 27th conviction was that the Bureau of Prisons has to do an investigation of each prisoner, and so it, uh, they, there was quite a long delay in getting that submitted. But now the recommendations uh, for time that should be given to them as sentences are uh, they're quite high. Uh, for, for Steve, it's uh, 28 to 47 months, and then for the others, it's between 18 and 25 months. Did any of your friends attend the trial? Oh, yes. The trial, the courtroom was full. Uh, there were many, many people there. There were people lined up outside. Many people felt as though um, it really is like the, the courtroom was like a, a, an annex of the Pentagon. They, they felt that the laws are set up to protect the Pentagon, to protect the weapon makers, to protect um, the United States' capacity to use these weapons. Um, but the, the Kings Bay Plowshares weren't allowed to bring in expert witnesses. They weren't allowed to testify about their motivation. They weren't allowed to talk about any of their religious convictions. The judge, uh, before the trial even began, had made very narrow rulings about, or, or uh, had made rulings that narrowed what kind of evidence could be presented so that the jury was basically only supposed to ask, did they or didn't they cross the line? So the jury didn't spend much time in coming back with a guilty verdict. Imagine it would be pretty difficult to find an impartial jury in Georgia. Just about every single working person's job is related to the base. I've gone down there several times and it's it's really kind of stunning. Uh, people are, are fearful of what would happen if that base ever closed down. And so, yes, it's, I think it's very difficult to find an impartial jury in that setting. It was difficult to find people who wanted to be local supporters. Uh, the closer one goes to Kings Bay, uh, in, in the Camden County Jail, uh, in Glen County Jail is in another further away and and in in Camden it was possible to find some people that wanted to be supportive but right at Kings Bay or St. Mary's nearer to the base almost impossible although while we were holding a vigil outside the base I was very impressed a young naval enlistee came and he said you know um, I was part of the group that arrested your friends but I actually agree with them, and I I hope that they won't be punished. We had a good conversation with him. Even if Steve receives a fairly short sentence, he still won't be out of jail. Well, he would leave the Glynn County Jail and be sent to a federal prison, but then if he does get a short sentence, he then has to go and face the warrant that is waiting for him in Tacoma, Washington. But these cases don't deter others from doing exactly the same thing. 
They haven't so far. Um, throughout my adult life, there um, I'd say there has always been a group of people who are either in pretrial or on trial or in prison for plowshares actions. And uh, certainly in, in, in the U.K. as well and, and in Ireland. But in other countries, uh, people are able to use the necessity defense. And so I saw the group in Ireland. I was their defense witness, and they were acquitted. Uh, a group uh, in, in the U.K. that protested at the British Aerospace did a plowshares action, and they were acquitted. And and people have done much more damage. You know, like uh, the, the Irish group did $1.5 million worth of damage to the United States Navy war plan, a plane parked on the tarmac of Shannon Airport. And they were acquitted because a very skillful team of lawyers were able to bring in the necessity defense. Life goes on. Yes, yes. The necessity defense basically says um, they had to take this action in order to prevent a greater harm. Thank you so much once again, Kathy. Well, I'm so glad that you're able to um, be um, operating in this time of pandemic and, and wish you, you all the best. Thank you. I've been speaking with peace activist Kathy Kelly about the life of Father Steve Kelly. Exhibiting 300 artworks by 286 Indigenous artists currently in or recently released from prison in Victoria, Confined 11 serves as a strong visual metaphor for the over-representation of First Nations Australians in the criminal justice system. This year, The Torch presents the annual Confined exhibition online at thetorch.org.au. All artworks are for sale and 100% of the sale price goes directly to the artist. Help us paint a brighter future. Head to thetorch.org.au from May the 14th to explore Confined 11. A 3CR supporter. You could be anything of everything. Every year, as the university years are before them, students all over Australia apply for scholarships to make study times a little easier and less stressful financially. But one Melbourne student went one better, or perhaps more than one better. For Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, it resulted in a term at a Cuban university in Havana, which unfortunately was cut short by the coronavirus. I spoke with Sasha at the weekend and took him back to late last year, which resulted in a chance of a lifetime for him. I wasn't actually planning on doing any study abroad because the applications for most programs close in June or July of the previous year when, you, when you're going to be going. So that had already passed and I wasn't really planning on going and then I received an email from my Spanish teacher saying that this new program had been offered at the last minute, that Melbourne University had been invited to this group called the Consortium for Advanced Studies, which is a collection of US universities and also Trinity College in Dublin. And I thought, well, you know, I've got such a fascination with Cuba that the program was taking place and they were offering a scholarship for one student. And I thought, why not, why not apply? Why not give it a shot, even if I don't end up getting it? At least I can say, you know, I, I, I tried it out. But it turned out that they, you know, they liked my application so much. Like I did mention, you know, the work that I, I do with 3CR, with Latin American Update, 
and the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society, and they ended up selecting me. And I found out in about the October, October of last year, which was very exciting. And what was the course for? What subjects would you be doing? It would have depended on, you know, whichever student happened to be taking it. But regardless, the prospective student had to be undertaking Spanish. You had to have a certain proficiency in Spanish. But in terms of what the the classes counted towards, for me, they counted towards my history degree. For other students who were there, counted towards sociology, economics for some, medicine uh, or science for some. So it really it really depended on the student. And what was the journey from there as getting there? I had to go flying from Melbourne to Los Angeles on a long-haul flight and then from Los Angeles to Miami, which is where all the students met. I think that was because most of the students were from the United States, so it made sense you know, for, for everyone to meet in, that, in a US city before departing, and that's where we had our orientation in Miami. That was interesting. That was actually the first time I'd ever got to stay you know, for, for a certain amount of time in the US. Normally, I'd just pass through. But yeah, Miami was, um, I I can't say it was a city I liked very much. It was quite quite a superficial, you know, touristy resort kind of place. And that also um, was sort of juxtaposed with with a lot of pretty pretty visible poverty. It's, It's a city where there's a lot of Latin American and Caribbean migrants who come to work there on very low wages. You could see the poverty around around the city, even if you went, you know, just a few blocks out of the city centre. But uh, in terms of the orientation itself, well, you know, we got to um, meet everyone. We got to know each other. They gave us an orientation on what to expect when we get to Cuba, the the cultural norms that might have differed from from our own countries. Yeah, but by by the end of it, I was I was very excited to to finally get get to Havana and and out of Miami. <laughs> what were your first impressions of Havana? As it was my my third time going to Cuba, I was I was very curious to see how it had changed and um, even getting just getting to the airport I noticed that the airport had been you know seriously refurbished the last few times I went there it was a little bit not run down but you know it was quiet and you could tell that it hadn't been you know done up in a while but you know it was quite quite a change even just coming into the airport and then even driving through the city to our homestays you could see that you know there there was um, a lot of new impetus for the works that were being done in terms of restoration of the um, of the city uh, of the old you know the historic buildings and the historic sectors of, of Havana. It was good to see that you know even in spite of the sanctions, the Cubans were you know finding a way finding a way to to get ahead and to to sort of sideline the the sanctions as best they could. In particular, there was a lot of Chinese and Russian investment. People were telling me, you know, which is good to, to know that Cuba isn't isn't alone. You the only Australian? Yeah, so I was I was the first Australian to take part in a CASA program. So they they also run programs in Chile, Brazil, Argentina, and Spain. Yeah, but I was I was the first student from Australia and the only student to have taken part. Yeah, I was I think a bit of a novelty to the uh, the American students, and so were the two the two Irish students who were with me as well. So it was an interesting dynamic having only three of us from a non-US background. How do they get this through the blockade or the sanctions, this university course? Yeah, it's interesting. So university travel or academic travel is one of the few forms of travel that has still a holdover from when Obama 
began the normalisation process with Raul Castro back in, uh, I think it was, what, like 2015-ish. So the Trump administration has progressively cut travel opportunities back, including most um, international flights from the US. You can actually only get there from Miami or New York if you're going from the United States. But academic travel is still permitted so long as the university um, you know, undergoes the, the correct processes and, and things like that. So they, they organised our student visas, the university did, and things like that. Is the university in the old part of Havana? It's not in, in the touristy part of what we call Old Havana or Havana Vieja, but it is close. It would probably be maybe a 25-30 minute walk, much quicker in a taxi. But the, the buildings it, it themselves of Havana the University would definitely not be a place the in the historic program directors beautiful a preliminary list Spanish architecture would likely be it is apart from the Dominican Republic until the semester the oldest one um, in, in Latin Latin America or one of the and oldest ones in Latin America, there, they sent us a revised list, it was a very, very beautiful changes, a lot of gardens that were cancelled, a lot of new classes that had been added. Very easy to get around as well. They had basically do it easy to read maps, which is good for as new students as we were wrapping our heads around seeing if you liked them or not. And then How did at the you end find the out weeks, about all the courses that they offer and which ones did you choose? And those were the classes you had to take. So I ended up taking a class on Cuban history, which spanned from the pre-Columbus through the Spanish conquest, through the independence wars in Cuba, right up to, to the revolution and the modern day, um, which was absolutely fascinating. I took a subject on Cuban public health and the history of Cuban public health that looked at the development of, of, the, of the health system in Cuba during the colonial period um, and then through the US-backed dictatorships uh, and then how it developed as a nationalised health service after the revolution. And as part of that class in particular, we got the privilege of visiting Cuban healthcare institutions. So we got to go to a hospital, a maternity ward, a mental health clinic and an old person's home. Um, and we got to you know hear firsthand from from people who work there and from patients, you know, how it works and, and, and what, they, what they think about the system, you know, its advantages, its disadvantages. And that was absolutely, that was probably one of the highlights, I'd have to say, of, of the experience. And then finally, I took a subject on um, the history of Africa and the Middle East, which was very interesting more so because of the perspective that the Cubans have as opposed to, you know, a, a Western country like, like the United States or Australia or the UK. So that was very interesting, particularly when, when we were studying the um, liberation struggles in Africa and in the Middle East, the 20th century. Okay, well, let's go back to the history of Cuba. What did you learn in those months that you were there that you didn't already know? Mm. Yeah, so the area of interest that I've, that I've always loved to study in Cuba was the, the revolution and its aftermath and the modern day. So it was very interesting to learn about the prior to the revolution, in particular the uh, independence wars, which are so which are so pivotal to to the Cuban national you know national story and national identity, but aren't very well known outside of Cuba itself. People tend to to just know you know about the revolution, the missile crisis, and and those sorts of events that had more I guess more global consequences. But in terms of the Cuban, the Cuban independence wars, it's very interesting because the Cubans view history as a sort of as a continuous process, almost to the point where the, the independence wars were sort of like the natural prelude to the revolution. And the revolution was then the natural consequence of the independence wars. 
and they even link it as far back as the um, indigenous rebellions against the Spanish in the 1500s before they were wiped out by the conquistadors. So it was very interesting to see that sort of, the, the way that they studied history as a, as a process, uh, as opposed to these sort of isolated incidents, which, which I feel is more the norm here in Australia. I mean, I certainly know here in you know primary school and in high school, we often just skipped Indigenous Australia altogether and began with colonisation, which you know isn't any way to study history or understand the reality of a nation. Did they talk a lot about the influence of the United States in their history? They were particularly excited to have people from the United States because of how how complex the relationship is today and how distorted the image of Cuba is in the United States. So they were very, I mean, obviously they were excited to have the students from Australia and Ireland as well, but um, particularly for the United States because they really wanted to, you know, to show these students their perspective and to demonstrate that, you know, contrary to what the the US government and media says, that, the, you know, the Cubans supposedly hate America and, and you know, they're, they're trying to undermine it. You know, the, the exact opposite is true. The, the Cubans have always just wanted to have, you know, as, as normal a relationship as possible with the United States, just one that's, you know, that's fair and on equal footing. But it's, you know, it's always been in the United States that has never been willing to to engage in that sort of relationship with Cuba. And there was even one of the um, classes that was on offer was a class specifically about US-Cuba relations, which I didn't end up taking, unfortunately, because it clashed with other classes I was taking. But I heard that that was a very interesting class as well, particularly for the US students who took it. Do they talk a fair bit about the heroes of the revolutions? Yes. They see... It's, it's, it's an interesting case, Cuba, because there is an immense admiration and respect for the revolutionary leaders like Fidel and Raul and and Che. But um, it's almost been taught in school that, you know, it's not about idolising, you know, a single person or an individual, that really they were just, they were just contributing to a greater project to, to, or to a greater whole. They'll mention, of course, they'll talk about Fidel's role in the revolution, but then they'll say, you know, he taught us to to respect, for example, education and healthcare as a right of the people. And then they'll, you know, talk for far longer about, you know, what their colleagues were doing or or about the Cuban doctors in other countries as opposed to an individual, which I think says a lot about, about the nature of, of the revolution that Fidel began. And also the many thousands, I'd imagine, slaves who were brought to Cuba and their contribution to the history of Cuba. Oh yeah, this is this is the one of the most significant things uh, because Cuba prior to the revolution was like the rest of Latin America was an incredibly racist society. The Afro-Cuban population lived in in absolute squalor, while the you know the the criollos, the the Spanish descendant Cubans, controlled controlled the financial institutions, controlled political institutions. And that was just how that was just how things were done. That was an accepted way. That that was the way it was ever since the colonial period. And and Cuba today is remarkable in the fact that that sort of racism and the exclusivity of opportunities that the criollos enjoyed has has more or less been been eliminated. And and you know on first on first hearing that people might be skeptical. You know it's hard to believe that they can just overturn all of these societal practices but it really it really is true you notice walking through the streets there's no mis- mistrust or 
or hatred between people of different races in Cuba, you'll notice just as many Afro-Cubans working in any particular job as there are non-Afro-Cubans. People in the government, uh, like, you know, in the highest ranks of the government, I'm pretty certain the vice president is, in fact, an Afro-Cuban. And that's not to say that racism is, is completely gone. Of, of course, it, you know, I'm sure it still exists in some capacity in Cuba. But um, it is really inspiring to see, you know, how much they have managed to change as a result of the, of the socialist revolution. And, of course, they all get paid the same as well in whatever, in whatever respective career they've chosen, which most certainly is not the case in countries like the United States, where, you know, being a different colour or a different gender can mean you earn far less than your colleagues, even if you've got the same qualification. Did you learn at all how the Cuban society dealt with homosexuality over those years? Because there was a great deal of problems in the early years of the revolution, but has that been completely wiped out now? This is perhaps um, what I would say is probably one of one of the the greatest, I guess, flaws uh, of the revolution that, that thankfully has been largely rectified, I would say, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Yeah, prior to the, um, pretty much to the, the 90s, really, the early 2000s, the revolution had quite a hostile attitude to homosexuality, and that, that stems from a lot of things. Firstly, Cuba had inherited a legacy of machismo, you know, that, that idea that to be a man, you know, like there's a very, a very limited definition of what it means to be a, a Latino or a Cuban man, and that, of course, included being heterosexual. So there was, you know, there was a lot of, not violence, um, but certainly hostility, uh, I, I guess, amongst the amongst society towards the homosexual population. But like I said, it never reached, it never reached, you know, the violent stage that it did in countries like, for example, Brazil or Colombia. But it was certainly, yeah, it was certainly reprehensible. But um, Fidel Castro himself in the 90s, during a period that they called the rectification or the period of rectification, he acknowledged himself that he'd made a mistake and that the government had made a mistake in their treatment of that community. And I mean, now today, you can see same-sex couples or people who who are, you know, quite obviously gay or bisexual, just, just walking around in everyday conversation with people. Gay marriage is still not considered legal in Cuba, but uh, as a part of their new constitution, they had a debate on whether or not to legalise it. And ended actually ended up being one of the most hotly debated topics over in regards to the constitution, because of course Cuba um, also still has quite a large Catholic population. Uh, there's a significant portion that don't practice it, you know, very fervently, um, but there is a small group that are that are still quite, you know, adamant in in their traditional views. And the government ended up saying, you know, there there was more or less an equal number of people for and an equal number of people against so they put it to a referendum which i think is meant to be was meant to be held this year but it is it has since been um postponed till next year in light of the the situation with coronavirus things have definitely improved there is certainly more awareness um, about issues related to the homosexual community but still still a way to go i would say with this with that issue and what's being taught about the role of the soviet union in Cuba over many years until the the breakup of the Soviet Union. Well, with the Soviet Union, I mean most most people. In fact, there was I think one person, and I'll and I'll get to that particular person, but only one person I met who had anything negative to say about the Soviet Union, and that comes from, of course, their history because 
Cuba, after after the revolution, was left isolated. America had just attempted to invade at the Bay of Pigs. Thankfully, that failed. And, you know, the revolution was completely isolated. The Organization of American States, at the behest of the US, had agreed almost totally, except I think Mexico and Canada. Um, the rest of the continent agreed to sever ties with Cuba. They were completely alone. And the Soviet Union agreed to step in and more or less subsidise their sugar exports. They agreed to purchase their sugar at, a, at an increased price and a fixed price so that the, you know, the ups and downs of the global market wouldn't affect Cuba's economy too adversely. And, I mean, most people said, like, you know, when, when the Soviet Union was around, you could find every shop was well-stocked, maybe not as much variety as you'd get, you know, like somewhere in Australia. But, of course, of course, it's a poor country. Um, but it was well-stocked with, you know, with meats and cheeses and dairy products, all coming from the Soviet Union. You know, politically, they had some sort of backing from Moscow and its, and its allies in Eastern Europe. Industrialization projects. Um, were started up with the help of the Russians. New railroads and new highways were built across the island with their help. So, you know, most uh, most Cubans, like a vast majority, look back on that period very fondly. But, of course, some people do did have their criticisms, namely in the field of culture. I remember we, we were speaking with one of the regional heads of the Cuban Union of Writers and Artists. He was quite critical of, I guess, the dogmatism in cultural institutions in Cuba during the Soviet period. He said that, you know, there was, there was less flexibility in what you could present or what would be presented or created just by virtue of the fact that, uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, there was a different interpre interpretation of what it, you know, what it meant to be, to be artistic or, or what art was. And that, that was transplanted into Cuba, which has quite a different artistic tradition. You know, on the same, on the other side of that coin, um, there were other people who, you know, who actually welcomed, you know, that injection of of Russian and you know European sort of uh, sort of um, art styles that had developed when the Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, you you wouldn't find anyone there that I spoke to um, anyway who said that you know it was somehow a good thing or that they had somehow been liberated. Like I remember one of the grandmother in our host family, Nina, was. Um, from the Soviet Union. She was Russian, but born in the Ukraine. And she had come over in the, in the 80s to teach Russian at the University of Havana. And she remembers when it collapsed and she said that, you know, she couldn't go back. She wasn't going to go back, you know, no matter what. Um, and she applied for permanent residency in Cuba. And she was saying, you know, it doesn't matter how bad it, it got here in Cuba, because it, it did. It was incredibly difficult in the 90s uh, with the special period. Uh, but she said it was nothing like what the the Russians had to experience in the 90s when capitalism returned. So very interesting. I'm speaking with Sasha Gillislakakis about his time as a student in Havana earlier this year. Just take you back to the artistic tradition and the, the role of Cuban music and dance and mm. literature, I'd imagine, in Cuba. Yeah, so, you know, today Cuba is very, very clearly recognised as, you know, as a world-class cultural destination in every sense of the word, in, uh, in terms of art, music, literature. And it does, you know, that, that tradition does stretch back to before the revolution. I mean, Cuba had some, some incredible, uh, particularly literary figures. One of the most notable, who was also a political figure, was um, José Martí, who's their, their national and uh, one of their national and ideological heroes. He, he fought in the second Cuban independence war. And he first came up, you know, he came up with the notion of a, you know, of, a, of an independent and sovereign 
and not quite socialist, but certainly a, a radical Cuban republic. He wrote some beautiful poetry and prose that is celebrated around the world and particularly in Latin America. And in terms of art, um, I mean, the reason art and music in Cuba became so prolific is, is actually because the revolution opened it up to the everyday citizen. Prior to this point, unless you had the money to enrol in, in an artistic academy or you had you know, somehow won a contract with a, you know, with a foreign brand or a foreign label, mostly from the United States, um, even if you had all the talent in the world, you weren't going to get anywhere. When the revolution came, they established art schools, performance schools across the country and you know, provided you did your, your audition and you were deemed to have potential, you were enrolled for free, free of charge. And in fact, we actually got to see firsthand this sort of, this idea of, of making art, you know, widely available to the public. When we visited this rural art school called Korimakau, and essentially what this school does, it was created in the 80s or early 90s maybe, uh, and the government essentially created it to provide an opportunity for disadvantaged students with potential in one of the art forms to come um, and essentially board there and then live and train and eventually find employment, whether that be as a painter or a dancer, singer, actor. And we and we got to see performances. We saw an acting performance, a, um, a musical band with some of the kids and a dance performance. And they were all excellent, like seriously excellent. You know, this is just, that's just one example of the way that the government tries its best, you know, to provide these opportunities to the most marginalised, to the people that are traditionally marginalised. Moving on to your second choice of subjects, which is public health, is there any actually private health in Cuba? No, private health does uh, is non-existent in Cuba. There's a separate strain of health service for foreigners, um, but even those institutions are publicly owned and publicly run, but they, they are reserved for tourists. And there's only a couple of those on the island, mostly in Havana. But no, um, according, under the constitution, privatisation of any sector of the health service is illegal, been like that since 1959. And an emphasis on preventative health rather than waiting until yes, people well, get sick. Yes, well, this is, and this is one of the keys to Cuba's medical success. You know, the field of, of health is undoubtedly one of Cuba's greatest successes. They chose to um, undertake or to focus on, I guess, um, preventative healthcare for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, when the blockade came into effect and, Q- and the island found itself, found itself struggling to, you know, to find the hard medicines and medical equipment needed for, you know, for more advanced procedures and, and things like that, they opted to, to take up preventative care because not only does that you know, more often than not, prevent a more serious case or a more serious injury. But it's also more um, resource and cost effective because then you don't have to, you know, devote all of that money and energy into trying to save someone who's who's then by that point got a potentially life-threatening um, injury or illness. And additionally, even, even before the revolution, the, the Cuban health system, even the private Cuban health system, has relied or at least tried to rely on preventative health care largely because of pandemics, which were widespread uh, in Cuba up until, up until the revolution, really. There was yellow fever, for example. Dengue outbreaks have, have always um, featured in Cuba's medical history. And preventative healthcare was seen as one of the most effective ways of, of halting the spread 
of, of those pandemics and of also treating the symptoms of those pandemics. And if you look at Cuba's health statistics, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely paid off. They have, um, they have the highest life expectancy in Latin America, lowest infant mortality rate in Latin America. They've consecutively, year after year, performed better uh, medicine-wise and health-wise um, than the United States, which says something about their, you know, the, the comparison between their two systems. Is there a combination between Western medicines and local complementary medicines? Yeah, so certainly. And, and Cuba's almost developed, it's quite interesting, it's almost developed its own, I guess what you could call Cuban medicine, which is the third way. And that's that's because um, Fidel Castro began to invest heavily in the biomedicine, biopharmaceuticals industry in Cuba. And they've actually ended up creating a lot of their own really unique types of medicines that that are really only found in Cuba. Like one example is there's a cream for arthritis made with shark cartilage that is only produced in Cuba as a result of this funding put towards the, the biomedicines industry. There is, of course, um, you know, your typical Western medicine as well that is widely practiced. But also you're right um, that that sort of informal or traditional medicine has made a comeback, particularly in recent years now that the blockade is really starting to squeeze the island. There has been you know, a reversion to home remedies and to learning about, you know, traditional plants and how they can be used to create certain medicines or certain cures to ailments. And it's actually, you know, it's become such a significant part of Cuba's medical, you know, medical world, I guess, that University of Havana has actually created a traditional medicines degree where you study the history of traditional medicine and how and how it can be used to combat certain illnesses. You mentioned the institutions that you visited can you just pick out one and, and just explain how it differs to what you might find here in Australia? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think the one that really stood out to me, well, I'll talk about two. Uh, one of them was the maternity ward. That's not exactly the, the correct way to describe it, but um, there's not really a word for it in English. But essentially what these centres are, um, is there a place where women with, with social or economic issues can basically come before and immediately after their birth to receive, you know, essentially like they, they take classes there with, with a trained nurse on how to care for their baby. Um, they receive, you know, three, four meals a day if for whatever reason, you know, they weren't able to, to get that because of a family situation or something like that. And they have, you know, a safe place to sleep if they were in, you know, an abusive relationship or something of that sort. So I found that really interesting in the sense that they they take the, the social and economic and psychological factors just as seriously as the medical with these vulnerable women and their children. Whereas here, you know, like, yes, there are services for, for women, but, you know, most of the time it is, you know, it's not widely available. It often costs if you want to, if you want to have any extra help or extra, extra like service, services or, uh, or aid rendered to you during that time. So I found that very interesting. Um, and also the um, the aged care home. And this wasn't an aged care home in the traditional sense because Cuba has those two, but this was more a place where the elderly can come for the day, again, to socialise, to go on excursions together with other with other people their age, to, again, to have, you know, to have a, a proper feed if their family um, is working the whole day and can't look after them. And, again, you know, that represents the, the holistic approach of Cuban healthcare, which is, you know, that idea that it's not just you know, the strictly medical 
that should be taken into account. There's, you know, social factors and economic factors that are just as important and perhaps even more so because it's a system that fundamentally cares about looking after people, not making money, you know, which is very much what our private health service is all about just, you know, accruing as much as much profit as possible. But in Cuba, it's, you know, it's a fundamentally different outlook, which was very refreshing to see. In the hospitals, do they have access to high-tech equipment? Yeah, so in terms of the life-saving equipment, the things that, things that are necessary for patients that are in dire straits, uh, yes, most hospitals are equipped with those. But if you're looking at that sort of more everyday everyday, uh, you know, things that you might take for granted. For example, one of the things I remember seeing, um, you know, sometimes here for the elderly, they'll have like, you know, weights or like a little area where, where they retrain your, you know, your muscles if you've been in an accident or you've, or you've had some sort of illness that's impacted your motor functions. In Cuba, they have that, but they can't get those little things, whether it be, you know, weights or like a little exercise machine or or like a little scale to, to weigh your um you know to, to weigh yourself and see how you're how you're progressing. They've had to resort to quite novel ways of, of overcoming that. They'll fill up, you know, water bottles with rocks or coffee beans to try and, you know, get the exact weight that they need. Um or, you know, little little things like that to try and imitate, you know, as close as possible what they would normally be able to get if they weren't under under the blockade. In terms of equipment for you know, life-threatening situations, um, that is something that the government prioritises. So it normally makes sure that you know, when it does get uh, medical technology from another country, that it does look to secure those sorts of, those sorts of technologies opposed to the more you know, everyday. I'd imagine a country that doesn't have a, a great deal of motor vehicles, that injuries from those accidents is not as widespread as it would be here. No, uh, and yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Motor accidents, are, of course, they do occur, and that is mostly because, you know, the further you head out of Havana, um, even in parts of Havana, the roads aren't in the best of best condition. That, again, is the fact that the Cuban government is unable to get cement from many countries, or when they can, you know, they'll have to ship it in from, from Russia or something, and that'll take quite a while to arrive. Normally, most people would either walk to work or they would take, take the bus. And public transport is incredibly cheap in Cuba, it costs, well, for seniors, it's free. For other people, it would cost about 40 cents, between like 20 and 40 cents, depending on how long the route is. And on the program next week, Sasha will be continuing talking about his time in Havana, Cuba, as a student at the University of Havana. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions, and we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.